We'll be reading in Mark 10, starting in verse 17, if you want to follow along. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. So we're in this text this morning, and we're going through this series of stories, actually, um, under the title, Jesus Encounters, the idea being that Jesus encountered in his life on earth people just like you and me. And as we go through these different stories over the next several weeks, we're going to see maybe people that you deeply identify with. You say, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with the same thing, or I have a similar fear or a similar question for God, if I could ask him a question. And you can, okay? And what I want you to understand as we go through this short series is that the wisdom that Jesus gives, the response and love that Jesus gives to all these different individuals is both timely and timeless. Like the words that he says to each specific person was so perfect for that moment and that person, and yet the wisdom that we continue to gather from him as he is present with us is so important. So let's jump right into this text this morning. And on the surface, it would actually seem like this man is a very attractive recruit for the fledgling Jesus movement, right? And he has money, he has authority, he's a, he's a ruler, one of the other gospels tells us, and he's ethical. So this sounds like every church planter's dream. You can find a guy who's moral, who's got some authorities, has some followers himself, and he's loaded, right? But this guy has a problem. And it's important that we diagnose this problem correctly. So I think it's easy to, to pounce all over the fact that this guy was wealthy, that he had some significant means, as if being rich was a problem. In fact, I've heard messages and even read a couple commentaries this week that kind of go deep into this underlying assumption that he was, he was greedy and materialistic and consumed with the things of this world and probably very selfish in the way that he used his money. People even say today, you know, money is the root of all kinds of evil, thinking that they're quoting scripture, when in fact that's not actually what scripture says. Or they say rich people can't enter the kingdom of God because Jesus, after this text, goes on to say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, which is simply hyperbole saying you can't come on your own means and you can't come through the ordinary means that you would expect. So I want to be careful to yes, obviously, that his riches is a very critical component of this text, but so is the fact that he's righteous, and so is the fact that he's a ruler, and Jesus isn't saying it's a sin to be any of those things. His root problem, as Jesus is going to take this story to point out, is simply that he's self-sufficient. 
It's not that he has money. It's not that he's trying to do many good things. It's not that he's leading other people. It's that he's self-sufficient. And that is a common temptation of wealthy people to say, because I have means and I can buy just about everything that my heart desires and seemingly needs, yes, I depend on myself more than I depend on God, but I think you all know that self-sufficiency is endemic to the human race. You could be very, very poor or very, very middle class and still be self-sufficient. The fact is, we like to do life on our own terms. So this story is about Jesus encountering a way of thinking that is extremely common to our culture today. And it's an incredibly practical story because Mark is going to show us these four things about self-sufficiency. He's going to show us some hints of self-sufficiency. He's going to show us the heart of self-sufficiency, the hazards of self-sufficiency, and the healing of self-sufficiency. And the theme that we're going to come to, just very, one very simple truth that Jesus is communicating through this story this morning, is he's just, it, it's an invitation to this man and to all other people who would struggle like I do with self-sufficiency, and that is, come to God with nothing and let him be your everything. That's the invitation of Jesus. Come to God with nothing and let him be your everything. Okay, so let's go off and running. I said, first of all, there are hints of self-sufficiency. Okay, how would I know, in other words, if I were slipping into this particular pattern of sin? And I want to give you kind of two big things that you can use as diagnostic tools in your own life. This is not for you to kind of be like, oh, I know her. She clearly seems to struggle with this. Or I got a friend or even a spouse who struggles with this. I want you to just kind of look at yourself and say, Lord, how do I do this? And the first of those two diagnostics is you rely on what you have or what you do more than or in place of God. You rely on what you have or what you do more than or in the place of God. And again, going back to the text, there are two things, really obvious things that stand out about this man. He was rich and he was righteous, or at least he claimed to be. And the entire story focuses on those two things. In other words, the entire story focuses on what he has and what he does. And I think it's fair to say he was building an identity on those two things. He wanted to be defined by these two things. He's basically walking through life and saying, this is who I am. And this is how I know that my life has meaning and I'm someone. He's like, this is how I get my validation. Look, I'm rich and I'm a very, very good person. And we know that he felt this way. That is, we know that he was building an identity upon what he had and what he did because we can just look at the text. First of all, Jesus told him, verse 18, Jesus tells him, no one is good except God alone. And he turns right around and basically tells Jesus and me, right? Jesus is like, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And he's like, well, and, and me because all of the commandments I have kept from my youth. And that's the proud claim of a very self-sufficient man, not coming with desperation of like, maybe I haven't literally murdered someone, Jesus, but I do find anger in my heart or resentment in my heart. Maybe I've never literally committed adultery, but I find lust in my heart. No, he's just coming and saying like, all the commandments I have always done. 
And then secondly, when Jesus calls him to walk away from wealth to inherit eternal treasure in heaven, he's like, nah, I'm good. So he's putting his confidence not in God, not in Jesus' invitation to a better life. He's putting his confidence in his possessions and in his performance is another way of saying it. And today we've got an entire culture doing the same two things. We define ourselves still by what we have and by what we do. And I don't mean just like outside these walls. I mean, even in the church context, how often are we going through life basically saying, who, who am I? And a conversation is I'm introducing myself or finding some sense of validation or worth don't we first very often go to what we have? Like, like, here's my financial means. Here's my job, my vocation. Here are some of my possessions, like, like my car, my house, my apartment. Here's where I live. Another thing that we have is like our status relative to other people. We have the right beliefs or the right morals and even those who would be you know, completely opposed to or just oblivious to God. Still in our secular culture today, the idea of like cancel culture is there's a group of people who have the right beliefs and values and everyone else's values and beliefs are no longer okay for this modern culture, but they're still defining themselves by what they have. This set of beliefs, this set of convictions, we define ourselves by what we do. We're good people. We're moral, ethical people. But we also define ourselves very much in this culture by what do I do? Well, I'm a fun person. I go and do exciting things all the time. And we've got the mountains right here. And we've got all that the urban life has to offer. And we are consumers of these things. And we go on vacation. And we build a work reputation. And then we go ski and hike and climb. And then come back to, you know, it's happy hour. And it's just do, do, do. All these great and awesome things. And we're like, I know I'm a someone because look at what I do. So we're, we're right back to identifying many of us with this man of being like, yeah, I can see how I could be self-sufficient because of so many wonderful experiences and because of the way God has even materially blessed my life. And again, I just want to point out, it's not a sin. It's not wrong to have any of those things, and it's not wrong to do those things. The issue is how much they mean to you. The issue is how much you depend on them, how, you, how much you feel like, I need these things to be a someone the issue is that we're building our identity and our sense of self-worth on these things. And I want to just point out two people could have the same thing, like great riches, and one of them could be very self-sufficient and one of them could still be very God-dependent saying, yes, I have these things, but this isn't what identifies me. And if Jesus called me to give those things away because I'm not finding my identity and my significance and my satisfaction in this stuff, I'm happy to be generous with this stuff as well, okay? But I'm asking us, where do we see ourselves reliant upon what we do, what we have? I mean, for our happiness in life, our sense of psychological safety in life, our sense of belonging to a particular crowd or tribe that we want to belong to, our sense of having value. Okay, so that's the first diagnostic, the first hint. You rely on what you have or what you do more than or in place of God. Now, a second diagnostic here 
is that you rely on what you achieve more than or in place of what you receive, okay? So the idea of achievement. And there's, a, there's an odd question here that may have jumped out at you at the very beginning of this text. Verse 17, the young man comes to Jesus. Another text says he like runs up to Jesus and like throws himself down. He's like master or teacher. And he says this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And just so we're really clear, Matthew, when he records the same incident, says it this way, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, this is interesting because the word inherit then meant what the word inherit means now, which is basically to receive as a gift or to receive something of considerable value that has not been earned. Like, why do you inherit something? Okay, you understand I inherit it because of my relationship to someone else. Like my parents have saved their entire lives and, and when they pass and even before they pass, they intend to say, we want to pass certain things on to you. Like, yes, of spiritual value and of intellectual value and of relational value, but even of monetary value, we want to pass something on as an investment in you and in our grandchildren and in future generations. And we know we don't earn that stuff. We don't earn an inheritance. We just get it as like a grace gift. But we see this guy and he can't even receive a grace gift. It's not, Jesus, what, what, what do I believe? Or, or there's, there's nothing I can do to make myself worthy of eternal life. So how does one get it, Jesus? No, he's clearly saying, what do I do? What do I perform? What can I make? What can I build to inherit eternal life? And it's about his performance. And again, I'm, I'm holding up a mirror to our own culture because we are so quick in a, as a culture to boast in our achievements, to boast in our abilities, to, to, to tell other people, these are all the good things I'm involved in. Look at how I volunteer here and here and here, and this is what I give away. And we're talking about what we do, but we are very slow as a culture to receive anything truly for free, like no strings attached. We're especially slow to receive something, not just that we want, like, hey, you want a free vacation, but we're very slow to receive as a gift something that we understand I desperately need. And someone's willing to give this to me by grace. Okay, so these are a couple hints how we might even diagnose this in our own lives. Now, let's understand why we do this. Okay, where are these behaviors coming from that we treasure so much what we have, what we do, what we achieve, what we can perform? And this is point two, the heart of self-sufficiency. This is about where it comes from. And you'll see Jesus reveals in this story that self-sufficiency is all about what you treasure and who sits on the throne of your heart. Okay, let me show you how he does this. Well, look at what, what does the young man treasure? What does he value? What's important to him? What was he building his life on? We just talked about this. And on the surface level, let's be careful, on the surface level, it looks like he, he values money and being a good person, right? But I want us to kind of like go a little underneath the surface and say, yeah, but why? Why was, so we- why was wealth so important to him in his heart? Why was being a good person so important to him in his heart? And I think the answer is like so many of us, he loved being in control of his own life. 
And riches and righteousness are two great vehicles for just kind of running your own life, having it your own way, maintaining control. Because with money and with righteousness, how often we don't feel like I truly desperately need God, depend on God. It's like, I'm good. God is for bad people. God is for poor people. God is for not smart people. I mean, this is how we intuitively think. And we're like, and right now I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty good. My financial stuff's going well. I'm employed. God is for needy people. And you see how in our heart we're already setting ourselves up to not depend on God, but just to depend on self? Because we arrange things in our lives that help us maintain control. And this is the first component of this heart of self-sufficiency is that we treasure control more than we treasure God. And again, this is the spirit of our age. How many people do you meet that would say, I am desperate for a relationship with God no matter what it costs me? No matter what I have to lose to gain a relationship, like an intimate relationship now with the God of heaven, I I would lose everything. Now compare that to how many people you know that just want to be in control, that just just want to be independent, to be autonomous, to be free, to, to be flexible, you know, we've got a culture full of people, and, and I kind of put myself in this, like we, we like to keep our options open as long as possible, and then we agree to something at the last second. Because that's part of that independence, that's part of that control, that's part of that, that flex of like, I'm good, I got it under control, and we maintain things in our lives that on the surface, other people would see those things and say, that's your problem. Jesus would say, no, the problem is that you love control more than you love me. And you're terrified of letting go of control and seeing what I might call you into. Friends, if we want to make sure that our heart never deeply desires Jesus, we can just do our own thing. Just be a good person on your terms. Just, just make money and spend money and invest money on your terms. Just get a job and climb the ladder on your terms. Just schedule your calendar on your terms. Just find things in your life that make you feel smart, that make you feel stable, that make you feel like you've got it together and you may never deeply treasure Christ. So that's the first piece of this heart is that you want control more than you truly want God. The second piece of this is you wanna rule in the place of God. And I can't remember what book it was that I read many, many years ago about just like this imaginary throne in your heart. Someone or something gets to sit on the throne and call the shots and be Lord and master and say, this is what's important. This is what's not important. These, these are kind of your mental maps for navigating your life. These are the things that other people use them as mental maps, but you don't need to worry about that. And we know at the end of the day, we will either say, I want this, but not my will, God. I want your will. Or we will say, you want this, but not your will, but mine. In our text, this good moral guy and I, like, even if you take him at his word that he's a good person, a moral person, but the tragedy is you get to the end of the text in verse 21, he's basically saying, not your will, but mine be done. 
You see that? In verse 21, Jesus says, come, follow me. And what does he do in the next verse? He went away sorrowful. sorrowful. He, this is the very definition of self-rule. He's like, I'm determining what I do. Like the God of the universe is like, come, follow me. This is my invitation. He's like, I'm literally doing the exact opposite. I'm going away instead of coming and following. And again, this is the spirit of our age. When Jesus says, come and die that you may truly live, we're all sitting here like, nah, I'm gonna live so I can truly live. I'm gonna do my thing so, that, so I can experience true life with that independence, that autonomy, that freedom, that self-expression, because that's how we identify ourselves. And there's no point sitting here saying like, man, those, those people out there are just crazy that they wanna run their own lives because we do the same thing. Given the choice between self-determination and living by someone else's rules and doing what we want, most of us, most of the time, and we make it look pretty good, we make it look very Christian, but we still do most of the time just what we want to do. And we reserve the right to change our mind for any reason. Um, even in marriage and family situations, our whole culture is like, I reserve the right to change my mind. I don't even want to think of marriage as a covenant where I'm committing myself to a lifelong, unconditional kind of love. We're like, I want to keep my options open, you know, in case, you know, over the years, especially over the decades, like I'll probably change a lot. She'll probably change a lot. So you, you never know. And that's the spirit of our age of just the, what, what's enthroned is my freedom, my autonomy, I get to make the call. I'm the master of my own fate, the captain of my own soul. But you ever do something in life that sounds really awesome? Because by the way, this sounds awesome so far, right? It, it really does. It sounds great. It's like follow someone else's rules, which is, which is our society's conception of becoming a Christian, by the way. It's not like a relationship with God where you are liberated to walk into something life-giving and hopeful and precious, like the greatest treasure in the world. It feels like I'm just committing to live by someone else's rules versus I just do what I want. And I've got flexibility and I've got freedom and I've got control over my own life. And if I'm being honest, like between those two options, this sounds really awesome. But I started to say, you ever, you ever do something in life that sounds really awesome? And, and as you're kind of on that track, there's like, there's little flags popping up like danger, little warning lights going off on the dashboard of your life, like pop the hood, something's going on that's not good, or, or literally like hazard buoys. A couple years ago, we were boating up in Grand Lake, and uh, there's, if you've been up there, there's, there's Grand Lake, which is the natural lake, and then there's this man-made channel where the river was, and then there's Shadow Mountain Lake. And so you can go through this little channel and go back and forth between the two lakes and, you know, boat and water ski and whatever. So we're, we're going through this little channel. You have to slow way down so you're not just crashing all these docks with the wake from your boat. And on the one side, there's this row of red buoys, and on the other side, there's this row of green buoys. And the idea is like you keep your boat between the two sets of buoys. Makes sense. So it's marking the channel. Well, we're, we're going through there a couple years ago with the entire family. And uh, all of a sudden, there's just like this clunking sound and the engine just stopped. And uh, so we understood that like, I, and I was driving, so I have no one else to blame. But 
So I'm driving, and the prop had hit a large rock underwater. So we reported this to, like, I don't even know who you report that to, like the fishing game or national parks or something. And they were like, oh, yeah, we're aware of that. Like, several people are killing their props, like, every single day out there. Because what had happened is someone had gotten in and moved a couple of the buoys over to make the channel wider but it's actually not safe to be over there. I thought, man, what an illustration of our culture that we're like, man, I don't like these narrow confines of this life that Jesus has mapped out for me. And like, let's, let's push these hazard buoys like way over here. And you see how much more free we are? We got all this extra territory where we can boat with our lives. Except those buoys were there for a reason. They were marking a real hazard. And $1,000 later, we have a new prop on the boat. You know, it's just stupid. It's like you, you just feel so carefree until that moment that bam, and it's done. And you're like, that was a very expensive mistake. And this is the next part of this text where Jesus is going to show us now, not just these, these hints or the heart of something that sounds good. He's going to show us the hazards of self-sufficiency. Okay. In the end, what kept this young man from following Jesus? What kept him from finding eternal life and the greatest treasure of all, what kept him from doing that is he simply just, as, as basic as it sounds, he's just like, I'm fine on my own. And his money and his morality masked his need. And this is your first hazard that Jesus shows us, is that your greatest treasure, your greatest assets become your greatest liabilities if you are a self-sufficient person. Your greatest assets become your greatest liabilities if you are a self-sufficient person. Okay, you look back at this rich young ruler. Is it good or bad to be good? Okay, well, let's assume the guy's not all bluster. Let's assume he was actually living a pretty moral life. Is that good or bad? It's good. Don't overthink it. You're like, it's a trick question because we need Jesus. And so, yes, but is it, okay. So he's basically like, I'm not sleeping around. I'm not stealing. I'm not lying to people and I'm not murdering people. Good for you. And other people are grateful. I'm being serious. Other people are grateful. You're not lying to them. You're not taking what belongs to them. You're not cheating on them and you're not literally killing them. That's a good thing, okay? So what's the problem? What's the hazard? The problem is that his morality hindered him from acknowledging his brokenness. He was so dead set on building an identity around his morality, he never experienced Jesus' righteous perfection gifted to him because he was so focused on his own righteousness. It was a good thing to be good. But because he was building an identity on it, his asset became a liability. Does that make sense? In the same way with his money, his money was a tremendous asset. He could have used it for a lot of good. He could have used it for a lot of personal enjoyment. There's nothing sinful about that. That's not bad. But his riches prevented him from acknowledging his true poverty. He just never saw it. It, it never sunk in, so he never experiences the true and full and eternal riches of Christ because his asset of money becomes a liability. And I'm just asking all of us, what if the things that you and I treasure most in life are actually being turned into liabilities, hazards, because of how much we treasure them? 
And we're missing out on the greatest treasure of all because we're taking lesser things and we're so focused on these lesser things and we're so grasping and hanging and clinging to these lesser things. We never, we never do what Jesus calls this man to do of like let go and experience something bigger and better. This is like friends invite you to the French Laundry in Napa and say, it's a whatever, five or seven course dinner at one of the nicest restaurants in the world and it's paid for. And that afternoon, you you pound a 12 pack of Bud Light by the pool and you miss out on dinner. Then in a moment of clarity after the fact, every single one of you would say, that was a really bad choice. And you'd be right. That's a terrible decision. But this is what self-sufficiency does to us. It exploits our appetites. And it says, go for it. You deserve it. This would be good for you. Build your identity on that. You're a someone because you have this and you do this and you're part of this tribe. And it feels so liberating and so exhilarating in the moment. But what Jesus is saying, hazard, hazard, caution, Don't let your treasure, don't let your good thing hinder you from finding the greatest thing. Because if you do, here's where you end up. The second hazard is not just that your greatest greatest assets become your greatest liabilities, but Jesus shows you too, at the end of the day, you get your kingdom, not God's kingdom. You can have it your way, but that's not God's way. And this young man starts out well enough, Rabbi, what do I do? Or how do I get eternal life? How do I enter the kingdom of God? In a sense, it's the wrong question. But in a sense, he could have listened to Jesus' answer and still landed in the right spot. Jesus says, how do you, how do you inherit the kingdom of God? Lose yourself. Give up your tiny little kingdom of one and get the kingdom. And he's like, I'm good. And he walks away. Sad, but he walks away. So he gains the world, but he loses his soul. He gains his kingdom, but he misses the kingdom. And I want you to think about that. Like some of the things that you have, some of the things you do, some of the things you crave, you're like, if I really were in control of my life, this is, this is what I would do with it. What if God actually allowed you to gain all of that stuff, all of that status, all of that, that notoriety in a positive sense? What would you have at the end of the day? And how long would it last? Like best case scenario, God gives you everything that you're like, this is what I treasure. And do you see how you could end up having your treasure, but not the treasure? You could end up with your kingdom, but not the kingdom. Hazards. Now, final point, the healing. So what do we do? If we see ourselves in this story and we're like, yeah, I like control. I I often find myself with other things seated on that throne of my heart. Jesus is not functionally there, but some of my own desires are there. Some of my own like needs are there. Just running my life is there. What's the salvation? What's the healing from that? I think this, this first detail is so important. I think it's a touch point for our culture. Because you know this young man's coming to Jesus and he's like, I'm rich, I'm powerful, and I'm good. But notice, he still has a nagging sense that he's missing something. I think that's so important. 
He's like, in one sense, I'm a self-made man and I've got everything my heart could possibly desire. This is what I'm living for. This is what I love. This is what I treasure. And he's like, but, but why is he going to Jesus in the first place? He's like, because Jesus, I have this nagging sense in the pit of my stomach. I'm still missing like the thing. And Jesus is like, because you are missing the thing. So the healing of self-sufficiency starts here. Your first point, acknowledge you're still missing something that nothing in this world can truly satisfy. I love this moment of self-awareness for him. He's otherwise like seemingly just a lost cause, building an identity on money and power and, and reputation. But he's literally like, I've kept all these commandments. What do I still lack? And I hear pain in those words, or like at least an angst, like a tension of his soul in those words that he would have done well to listen to and that you and I and our culture at large would do so well to listen to. Why do I have so many good things? And compared to every other culture everywhere in the history of the world, our culture right here and now is better than almost all of them in terms of prosperity, in terms of the ability to have independence and freedom and autonomy, to run your own life, to make your own decisions. We have almost more of that than anybody ever, and yet we still have something similar, like this nagging thing of like, I, I feel like I'm missing something. This is like Tom Brady in that famous 60 Minutes interview after he'd won three Super Bowls, and they might even have been back to back to back. And he's sitting down with the interviewer, and he's like, now that I've done this, and I'm 27 years old, I'm at the pinnacle of my sport. And he's like, and it just feels like I'm missing what it's all about. That's that, the same feeling. And I'm saying, listen to that voice, because you and I were not made for this world. As, as enjoyable as God has just packed this world, as broken as it is, there's so much beauty. There's so much love. There's so much goodness. But God is still trying to show us we were not made to be satisfied with money plus sex plus friends plus the right kind of career plus tons of amazing experiences every weekend that let us just live the dream. And yes, are those good things? Sure. But you were never meant to be ultimately satisfied by those things plus those things plus those things. So that's the first way we get healed is we acknowledge I've got all this and I'm thankful for all this, but I'm still missing something. Then number two, see the love of Jesus for you. And this is another stunning detail in our text where Jesus says, remember he comes up, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. And then the young man foolishly reports like, and me because I've been awesome since birth. And Jesus knows you're building your identity on your performance, on your righteousness. And so, of course, Jesus could have scowled and like rolled his eyes. He could have been like, please, child, like you're so full of yourself. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's incredible, where he could have just been disappointed, offered a rebuke, offered a stern warning. Like what Jesus feels toward him in that moment, and if, if the young man's looking at Jesus' eyes, what he would have seen was compassion and empathy instead of just like, 
you're so dumb. And I say, see the love of Jesus for you because no matter how broken you are, no matter how much even you feel bent in toward yourself and on yourself and your own dreams and your own hopes and your own possessions and your own performance, if you could see the eyes of Jesus as he sees them, you would see love. And now here's Jesus' invitation to him and to us. Come to God. And this is the theme, I think, of where he's landing this. Come to God with nothing and let him be your everything. It's not stop being greedy, stop being materialistic. I mean, if you are those things, sure, stop those things as well. But the guy's problem in a nutshell is he thinks, I have everything. Nagging sense, I'm missing something. And Jesus is like, give it all away. Give it all away to the poor. Give it all away to the undeserving and come follow me. By the way, you notice that's the only time in scripture that God, Jesus, calls someone literally like give away all your wealth, liquidate it all. Why? Because Jesus understands for this man, that was his hazard because he's building his identity on it. And he feels like, well, if I, if I join the team and I'm the recruit and I bring this money and my purse is open and Jesus tells me to do just one other thing, like that's what I'm looking for. And Jesus is like, give it all away and come follow me. Now, we know that Jesus is saying, come to me with nothing and find your everything in me because of what just happened in the text. So we didn't read this part this morning, but do you know what just just happened? Like if you just let your eyes just roll up a couple verses earlier and what Jesus is doing is welcoming children. Okay, and in our in our culture, that's that's cool. I mean, our culture, we build our entire lives and schedule and identity around our kids. It's all about the kids and the brands that we're putting our kids in. And what we're doing with our kids and our kids' nap times and our kids' feeding time is all about the children. And Jesus' culture was almost exactly the opposite. Kids are like not even like full-status citizens, basically. They're, they're kind of a pain in the neck until they get to a certain age where they can start contributing to the needs of the family, and then you can start passing an identity to them. So Jesus' culture, all I'm saying is they looked at children very differently, like a necessary evil almost. Like you have a bunch of children and hopefully one day they can grow up and work the farm and take care of you in your older age. So this rabbi is stopping and literally welcoming little ones, like toddlers, up onto his lap. And people are like, Jesus, like master, we've got better, more important things to do. And he's like, no, we don't. Now let them come. And he says a couple important things there. He says, like, unless someone comes to me, like one of these little children is coming to me, they can't enter the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of God is made up of people just like this. And what he's pointing out is not like they're cute, they're little. He's pointing out they are helpless. They are utterly dependent human beings. But they come And when they come to Jesus, they're not coming like, Rabbi, this is what I deserve. They're not the rich young man. Like, this is what I have, and this is all the awesome stuff I've done. They're just just coming. They're coming with nothing. And they're coming believing that the rabbi will accept them, that Jesus will accept them, obviously not on the basis of anything they have or have done, 
but, but just because that's who Jesus is. So he's pointing out children are the polar opposite of this rich young ruler. And they're just quietly confident that this Jesus will give me whatever I need. And they're happy to receive grace gifts from this Jesus. And they're like, it's not about my worthiness, it's about my relationship. And I still love this about kids that and it can get annoying. And you can immediately, as a parent, go to that annoying part of it. But it's a beautiful part of it that they just, they come and they just ask for the craziest stuff. And they're not coming like, can I have this big thing because I, I'm incredible? Like for miles, for weeks, it's been a backpack. Because he's like, ah, oh, my little backpack from kindergarten, it's so childish. And the little, the little design on it, I just don't like, I want like a, a, just a matte gray backpack. It's cool. Right? And he just asks and asks and asks and asks, relentlessly asking. And he's, he's not so much like, I deserve this. I earned this. I, I did my chores. I cleaned my room. I took out the trash because he's not doing any of those things. So he's not, he's not claiming that he deserves something. He's just like, I, I want it, and you're my mom. And there's something to love about that. Jesus, I want this. I need this. And you're my God. Like, I'm coming to you with nothing. And I want to understand that because even, like, obviously we're a church that receives, like, financial gifts so that we can do more ministry. And it's an easy and kind of low-hanging fruit kind of accusation of just, like, oh, the church just wants my money. God just wants my money. Like, listen to this. First of all, Jesus is not like, go sell everything you have and give it to me. He says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Because here's the point. Jesus doesn't need your money. Jesus doesn't need your righteousness. He doesn't need your power, your job, your ability. He doesn't even need your spiritual gifts. He doesn't need, he doesn't need anything from you. So he's not saying, release this to me so that I can have it. He's saying, release this to heal you. Let go of the thing, not because I need it, but because you need to let go of it in order to have everything. The thing you're clinging to is hurting you. The thing that you're building your identity on, the thing that's making you feel like you have control over your life, it's killing you. And Jesus is saying, let it go so I can heal you. So the juxtaposition of these stories of the little children coming with nothing, expecting everything of Jesus, and this rich ruler coming to Jesus with everything and expecting nothing the clear lesson that Jesus is showing us is just come to me with nothing of merit, no, no deserving, no, I earned this. And he's like, then follow me. That is, become an apprentice to me. Learn my ways, be with me, become like me, do what I did, and you'll find true life in that relationship of faith. So again, come to God with nothing and let him be your everything the healing from a life of self-sufficiency.